Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practice. In this episode, we're discussing medical legal matters, how to avoid them with the solicitor who works with one of the medical defence companies. So a patient approaching a doctor expects medical treatment with all the knowledge and skill that the doctor possesses to bring relief to his or her medical problem. The relationship takes the shape of a contract. Equally, a doctor owes certain duties to his patient and a breach of any of these duties gives a cause of action for negligence against the doctor. As doctors, we have a duty to obtain prior informed consent from the patient before carrying out diagnostic tests and therapeutic management and to clearly document our conversations, investigations and procedures. While communication, consent and documentation are the big three issues that tend to permeate most medical claims. It's estimated that 140,000 cases of diagnostic error occur in Australia each year. Of those cases, 21,000 are of serious harm and result between 2,000 to 4,000 deaths. Multiple factors are considered responsible and any one of these errors may lead to legal dispute. Additionally, communication disputes stemming from a difference in perception and understanding by a patient of what has been discussed and agreed to are not uncommon. Misunderstandings of fact and or a perceived disregard for patient and family's emotional concerns may also lead to litigation, but be mitigated through careful documentation by the practitioner of the consultation undertaken. So medico-legal entanglement is one of the most uncomfortable situations a doctor may face in his or her professional life. The emotional strain is often felt alone and can be devastating for one's confidence, reputation and perception by the community and one's subsequent relationship with one's peers. No doubt, many in the medical profession feel terribly exposed and subsequently defensive in their medical practice, which draws another form of attention and possible rebuke from the medical regulators and Medicare. So in this conversation with expert medical defence solicitor Rocky Roperto from the Avant organisation, we'll explore how to avoid medical legal problems and to continue to practice safely and with confidence. Rocky advocates for changes to health-related legislation, regulation and policy with the aim of making a positive difference to the practice of medicine and the Australian healthcare system. He provides legal and educational support to doctors and practices to help reduce their medical legal risk and improve patient safety and quality. Clearly, he was an excellent resource to converse with. I was curious to explore the top 10 red flags that can save us all from medical perdition, misery and embarrassment. This was an interview I really enjoyed. So to keep the Italian flavour going, per favore unisciti a me con un esperto signore qui nome Rocky Repetto. Please welcome him. Now, Mr. Rocky Repetto, thank you for joining me on Everyday Medicine. Uh, it's not every day that I get a chance to talk to uh, uh, a legal, uh, a legal, legal, one of the legal profession professionals from, uh, you know, a happy perspective. This is a happy perspective for me to interview you, Rocky. Uh, we're going to talk about... Um, like the top 10 risks for, for, for medical practitioners, the red flags, things that we need to sort of really be aware of and watch out for to avoid ending up in, in a legal situation and a nasty entanglement that we all are wishing to avoid. Um, so I'm very uh, honoured to have you here, Rocky. I should say, uh, buongiorno, uh, come stai, signor? Benvenuto. Uh, buongiorno, grazie. Yeah, Thank grazie. you for having me. <laughs> Um, Ro- Rocky, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're kind enough to come and join me, and I've been hounding you for uh, over a month now, two months. Um, what is your background? How did you find your way into this uh, very important uh, profession for us as doctors, uh, you know, medical indemnity and so forth? So tell us a bit about that. 
Sure. I mean, presumably, Luke, you're not talking about my Italian background as we've just had a little conversation with and pre this recording. Uh, we realised we both have a love for, so we can practise our Italian language another time. But uh, yes. I started at Advance uh, about eight years ago. So I was, um, after I studied law and was admitted as a solicitor in New South Wales, I actually went into the insurance side of things. I started with one of Australia's largest general insurers and then moved to an international insurer. And then I found my way to event. And I haven't looked back since. It's been such a great organization to work for. But I did again start in the insurance part of the business. And then um, once I got to learn more about medico legal uh, claims and complaints, they really interested me. And I think it's because of the human aspect to them. And I think you know, you can speak to anyone and it's relatable. Everybody goes to see the doctor. Everybody has their own health issues. So working with doctors through claims and complaints really gave me a lot of motivation because of the, the humanness of all the stories. Yes. Um, so I think that's why I am drawn to this particular type of law as opposed to anything more commercial or corporate. Um, and I also studied science and psychology. So I do have that interest in health oh, and law. So it's really married both my interests. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. I mean, I think all doctors want to try and avoid the, you know, the disputes. And I mean, I don't think you know, it's always unintentional when things go wrong. Um, but, um, but it can be very, very, uh, uh, distressing for for both the patient and the doctor when you get uh, caught up in in events. I think it's it's some of my colleagues I've spoken to over the time. No, nothing major, but it's been devastating for them just to know that there's something coming up, some sort of uh, uh, legal uh, discussion. Uh, it, it's it's it certainly affects one's uh, ego and one's uh, sense of self respect, and you know makes you double check and reflect on what you've been doing for a long time. I, I wonder if there are any medicos working with you, people that have got MBBSs that have then also done double degrees with law. Do you have any of those people in the organisation? Those overachievers, yeah, we certainly do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're over. You've done science, psychology. <laughs> Law, Italian. <laughs> that's the that's the most important one. How to make a good pizza? We do have doctors on staff, and and some doctors do have legal qualifications as well. So uh, we are very lucky at Advance to have that expertise that we can call upon. And I feel so comforted by having a staff member, you know, who I can sit next to and just talk about the medico issues yes. within a claim, um, and really have that understanding in a in a safe environment. And also, I think it's great for our members you know our members have the opportunity to speak with medical advisors on staff who um, work closely with us lawyers or who might have legal qualifications of their own so yes. we do have uh, quite a broad range of expertise and experience at event well that, yeah that's really nice to know and very helpful and you know the, i just getting on to the top 10 things i uh, understand we've got the big three communication consent and documentation the big three and there's you know there's another seven we're going to talk about but can you run through this tell us about tell us about the sort of pitfalls what are the things that we really need to like a thumbnail sketch on each one of those what, what are the things we really need to be aware of starting with communication perhaps yeah sure thing luke so i mean as you can imagine the communication style of a doctor filters through everything and it's so important to develop that rapport with your patient early on giving them the time to tell their story and develop ways to confirm understanding. And that's really important. And it's quite a large focus 
focus area other than education. And as you can imagine, that then filters into whether or not a valid consent was taken. So the the types of communication claims and complaints that we see can really range from ineffective communication. So the doctor making irrelevant comments or, or not explaining things in an understandable way. Yeah, so there is that broad range of issues with communication. Another one that we do tend to see pop up is disrespect towards patients. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's an allegation or concern that when I look back on our claims, um, it's actually ar- it arises in, in one in eight of our claims. How is disrespect manifested? Is it like a criticism of the patient, uh, throwing it back on them to some degree? Is, is that when we look at these complaints, disrespectful communication or what we categorise as that means that there was some kind of allegation um, that could include perhaps the patient felt that the doctor spoke rudely to them or yes. ignored them yes. or it was to do with um, the attitude or manner. So the patient thought the doctor was arrogant or inconsiderate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just perceptions, isn't it, Rocky? You know, it's he said, she said. It, it is perception. Yeah. And I, I, I don't I think maybe, maybe currently, you know, I'm from a different generation than current doctors, but maybe currently there's a bit more time spent in medical school on emotional intelligence and kind of understanding, you know, where patients are coming from. Uh, but maybe there was a generation that was perhaps a little bit less inclined to communicate deeply about clinical matters. It was just the worst of what I'm going to do. I'll make the decisions. Uh, and, and yeah, I think patients, the world's changed, hasn't it? Patients, do want to be informed and they have access to the internet. So there's information everywhere. Sometimes the information might include uh, unicorns and other things, but it, it, the information in, it's certainly it's available and uh, people talk with other people. And you know, I think everyone feels a bit more empowered maybe than, than they used to, uh, I think. Um, so that, that's extremely important. Um, t- t- tell us a bit about the consent process. What, what, how does that manifest as a, as a claim? Well, I think it's a good segue into consent, actually, what you were just talking about, because consent has really evolved over time to be um, the doctor having the main lead in deciding what the treatment will be, telling the patient this is how the treatment is going to go, to really a more shared um, understanding and shared decision-making process between the doctor and the patient. Now, we have a catchphrase at event, and that's consent is a process, not a form. And what we're trying to convey there is that gaining consent from the patient means more than just going through a checklist of risks. It really um, means reaching a mutual understanding of what's planned and and what our data indicates is that rarely is there dispute over whether or not the consent process occurred and it's more about the quality of the consent discussion so overall incidents within claims is about 10% have some kind of consent element um and Probably the main issue here is that discussion about risks. So that's really important, giving the patients enough information to make the decision, including risks that are both material to that particular patient, but then also the general risks of treatments and procedures. Yeah, sometimes giving consent, I find it's difficult sometimes to communicate a risk, I think, to a patient accurately without sort of scaring them. Because mm. to, just somewhere in the world, just that something's gone, whatever has, whatever can go bad has gone bad to somebody at some point. Yeah, well, do, like, how far do I have to go discussing? Yeah. Is it just the general, uh, the general kind of risks, or do we do we say like oh, this is one million risk? Do we get down to that sort of figure? Uh, do do you have a rule, on, a rule of thumb about that? How, how 
how rare, I, I, you know, because I know when things come to a dispute, oh, well, one in a million had this complication. No, Cranbrook, you should have discussed that with the patient. You know, this rare thing. Uh, I think, oh, okay. Uh, sure, that, do we, how far do we go? That can be quite daunting. And, I mean, it, it probably is a mix of an art and a science here. Yes. So with risks, you do have to discuss the general risks common to that treatment or procedure. But when we are talking, when we say material risks, what we're really talking about are risks that are important for that particular patient. And the case in Australia which decided this, actually the risk which eventuated was quite rare, but because the patient had informed the doctor at that point that it would be really unsatisfactory or she was really worried about losing eyesight in both eyes, Yes, Um, the doctor, the expectation on the doctor then was to inform the patient of the risk element of that actually occurring because she had made it clear that that was so important to her. So even though the um, potential of that manifesting and materialising was quite low, given that it was material to the patient, Mm -hmm. there was an expectation on the doctor that they would speak to the patient about it. So it's those general risks which are common to that particular treatment and procedure but also the material risks to that particular patient and the only way you're going to know what's material to that patient is having that thorough consent discussion finding out what's important to them what kind of family responsibilities they have what's their work like what does it entail them to do and also if something does go wrong and treatment doesn't go according to plan how are they going to manage that and have they considered that that's just as important to talk about and then of course which will be the segue into our next yes document 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 (laughs) (laughs) well that's very helpful to discuss i tend to try and complete my consent questions when i've discussed things with the patient is there anything else you'd like to discuss is there something that's troubling you do you want to discuss that further that's a great way to end Um, conversations and it's a good question and that's that i guess covers the material one to some degree but um uh the documentation is is very important and a lot of us are busy and maybe we don't document things to perhaps the degree that is required in uh, a courtroom, you know, like, like it's always easy later on to think, oh, I should have written more, should have yeah. documented more. T- tell us about the documentation. How how like thorough do we have to be there? I mean, the idea of documentation is that it should convey enough information to ensure the safe and effective ongoing care of the patient and document your clinical reasoning. So when we look back on our records, which were considered below standard um, because they were adequate or incomplete, what they were missing were not documenting important verbal discussions about risks or complications of treatment, omitting details about physical examinations, tests or treatments performed, and not documenting negative history or findings and diagnosis considered but ruled out. So they're the things that um, were found when records were considered below the standard. Rocky, is it enough to write down you know, risks discussed in full with patient or do we have to actually spell out is that that's just too way too broad? So that would not get us past the, uh, the, pub, the pub test yeah, in, the, in court. Absolutely not. There's, there's no indication. Actually a bit more energetic. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of doctors do use checklists and they can be beneficial, um, you know, to talk about the risks and then they might put a tick next to it or the question above it that the patient might have had related to that risk or they might initial it just some kind of indication that you spoke about those individual risks but i can't imagine that saying all risk discussing full is going to be very helpful to us as your lawyers but also to you and particularly (laughs) something like um, a medicare order or when doctors appear at the psr 
you know, they they can come up against quite severe outcomes when records are found to be poor. And at Avant, we have another saying. So with that consent, the catchphrase about consent, we also learn out our inductions is that good medical records, good defence, poor medical records equals poor defence and no medical records equals no defence. So, yeah, we're really important to the defence um, of any litigation. So primarily the objective is, you know, that safe and effective ongoing care of the patient. Um, but if you need a second reason, it's that if you do get brought into litigation or complaints, it is much easier to defend you. Yes. You know, I was just thinking that we don't, I, again, I don't think that, that there's a, a, a like a lecture to medical students, but I'm here from, uh, well, here's Roger Perto. He's going to tell you <laughs> 10 big things. And for goodness sakes, make sure you listen to these pearls of wisdom, you know, no records, no defence. I mean, they're, they're really important things. Like I think often in medicine we tend to learn the hard way, talking with colleagues perhaps, or you hear something, oh, I better be careful there. Um, but, you know, it's a shame that we're not perhaps educated a little bit more. I think we're assumed to be reasonably intelligent and, oh, you'll know this stuff. But, you know, it's someone, it just gets passed on to you. But I, I, I think that this sort of um, discussion is extremely helpful. Diagnostic errors uh, are something probably every doctor will have had, I, I believe, in their in their career at some point. Hopefully they're not serious diagnostic errors, but it's, it's almost impossible, I think, not to have a diagnostic error. How yeah. should we handle that? Do we deny well, it ever happened? <laughs> I should... Uh, I don't think denying is a a good idea. I think it's always um, the best approach is to be open with your patients about it. Diagnostic errors are common and they appear in every healthcare setting and they can appear when diagnosing really common conditions, but also as you'd expect, unusual conditions. And one in five of our claims were primarily about diagnosis. And so in these claims, a failure to diagnose a patient's condition or delay in the diagnosis were much more common issues than a misdiagnosis. Right. Okay. And and that can be quite hard. Sometimes you're not really sure about the patient Mm. and the condition could drag on for a long, long time. You might think, oh, you know, this this is not such an issue. And I've had some some slightly unusual ones, Addison's disease, and that you know, it took me a long time to sort of uh, seek really another opinion. Um, but I didn't give up on the patient, which was, I guess, one good thing. Yeah. And uh, people with amyloidosis and uh, slightly unusual things that I've missed. But I, I guess, again, it's a matter of, of having that communication line open with the patient as well. Well, can I keep on trying? Do, do you, does Avant recommend seeking a second opinion early if, if the patient's coming back with ongoing complaints and just can't yeah. work them out? Because there is a, there is a, I think a tendency to sometimes think, well, my patient, you know, oh, they're not really that unwell. I don't know that there's really much wrong with this patient. You know, Look, it's easy to make that assumption and then you get this confirmation bias as time goes by and you can miss things. Um, there are red flags we look out for in medicine, losing weight, you know, abnormal biochemistry, hematology, all those sort of things. But um, yeah, do, do you sort of advise like early maybe second opinions when we're not, when we're struggling a bit? Yeah. Look, in both cases, in the uh, failure to diagnose or the delay in diagnosis and the misdiagnosis, inadequate referral for further diagnostic investigations or inadequate um, physical examinations were really common underlying themes. So we would, but also doctors do have a ethical obligation to um, support a patient's decision to seek a second opinion. And that exists in the code of conduct, that obligation. So Uh, I think it is very, um, yeah. you know, you should be open to... Yeah, yeah. we shouldn't feel embarrassed yeah. about saying we're not really sure and 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 seeking another opinion, yeah. Let, let the ego just uh, find another resting place. Uh, prescribing issues, prescribing issues. Does, does this relate to lack of discussion of side effects when we talk about prescribing? Tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah, look, um, the most common issues in in the category that we would call medication is prescribing, um, and that's inappropriate prescribing or inappropriately refusing, reducing or ceasing medication. Right, okay. These types of claims do pop up a lot for GPs. I mean, that's the most, um, that's the specialty affected most by this. And more than half the prescribing related claims involve section 4D or section 8 restricted or controlled substances, often benzodiazepines or opioids. Yes. Okay. Other things related to this were, um, you know, administering the wrong medication or had to do with management and follow-up issues. So, inadequately monitoring a patient or ignoring their medication concerns. Well, what, one of the things that I've noticed over the last years is that there's so many different names, different generic products now, all, all for the same, uh, different traits, all for the same generic uh, drug. And my gosh, it's really quite complicated. Like MIMS has become a, a minefield sometimes even still. Like, you know, I've been in the profession for a while. Someone says, oh, I'm on this drug. So I've never heard of that drug. And I open up, oh, I have heard of that drug. I didn't know that drug. I'll have to get the MIMS out. So I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to double check because I don't know with this product. And it's very, it's very easy, you know, it's, it's a big trap for us, I think, in medicine, um, you know, and or something, as you say, something gets omitted from a list or you, you suddenly discontinue a drug and someone has a withdrawal event of serious nature. Yeah, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of traps there for us to be really mindful about. Lots of double checking required, I think. Um, what about professional, professional behaviour? This is a delicate subject, isn't it? <laughs> It can be. I mean, it's pretty broad. Our claims data suggests that one in four claims have some kind of issue, which we'd categorise under the the big umbrella of professional behaviour. But the most significant concern here are boundary issues. Yes. And um, I mean, they're most common in claims and complaints relating, again, to GDP. P's, and that's not surprising given the scope of their work, but also psychiatrists. Mm. And the message here is maintain respectful and professional boundaries with your patients at all times. I mean, it can't be clearer than that. It's yes. boundaries are integral to good doctor-patient relationships and they promote good care for patients and they protect both parties. Yeah, it's all about protection and trust, isn't it? Yeah, that's such an important one. But, you know, the human side of the human frailties uh, we're all a little frail at times. It's I can see how people do get caught up occasionally in in, in that difficulty. Uh, treating family and friends. Uh, What's well, it's a no-no? I have to say, I do. I do treat my my uh, my sons <laughs> from removing splinters to here's some antibiotics for your tonsillitis. But I think the removing splinters one comes under your parental <laughs> responsibility umbrella. I think that one's okay. That's okay. But look, wherever possible, we'd advise doctors to avoid providing uh, care to anyone with whom they have a close personal yeah. relationship. Yes. And it's because of, I mean, there's generally a lack of objectivity. Yes. It's possible to discontinue that care. And there's risks to the patient and doctor. And the medical board recently updated their code of conduct. And they said that medical practitioners must not prescribe, schedulate psychotropic medication or drugs of dependence to um, people that they have that close relationship with, so their family and friends, or they mustn't perform elective surgeries such as cosmetic surgery to anyone with whom they have a close personal relationship. Um, But in the same, you know, the next paragraph, I think, in the Code of Conduct says, acknowledges that providing care to those that you're close to is sometimes unavoidable. And the obvious example is within an an emergency. But wherever that is the case, just recognise that, carefully manage the issues and then make sure um, you make arrangements to have the continuing care with another practitioner. Yeah, it's where where the communications needs to be really clear because sometimes friends do put pressure on and can be offended if you... Uh, 
uh, deny them that yeah. assistance. The assistance might be a deflection. I'll find someone else to help you. Uh, but when can they say, oh, well, in a month? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, really? Well, you, you could write a script out right now, couldn't you? <laughs> I don't. Uh, you know, I've been talking Why? about it, so I'm not going to. You can't make me do it. And like, yeah. There's pressure. You know, there is pressure that some good friends don't actually pressure you generally, but I suppose. That's almost more an acquaintance than a good, a good friend generally understands. I don't envy you at all, Luke, or doctors, because my family come to me for legal advice, and when I tell them that I can only advise doctors and i have no doctors in my family they just think i'm the most useless lawyer ever (laughs) (laughs) it's very very difficult it's very difficult uh what do you say just don't do it uh social media are we allowed are we allowed to advertise is there other issues with uh advertising we just have to be very careful we don't want to be you know posts we just need to be careful what we post don't we in terms of respecting patients privacy respecting patients privacy is a big one but also um keep in mind that medical regulators may consider your use of social media in the context of a complaint and while you have the right to hold personal views the code of conduct confirms that you must consider the impact of any of your social media comments or posts on your role as a doctor particularly around patient access to care and how patients may feel coming to you um, after you've posted something yes, yeah. um, and also you have to consider the reputation of the medical profession as a whole and this really became an interesting topic to see it unfold um when the onset of the COVID pandemic and the vaccine, there was a lot of attention by regulators looking at what doctors were doing and how they were expressing their views and how they may have deviated um, from what was um, considered um, the opinion of the medical profession as a whole. Yes, they did get some people into deep water, didn't it? Some some very deep water. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, you know, sometimes we have uh, you know an emotional connection with a point of view, but um, th- that should be held private. Uh, and that the pri- there's the privacy, which is jumping Medicare for but getting into the pri- that privacy whole uh, topic. Uh, I guess keeping things uh, well documented, but in a private matter, a private form, not sharing information about patients detail is extremely important isn't it you have to be so i mean doctors might post things on their social media and there might be a a patient chart in the background that they just don't even realize might have some patient information on it and things so when you are posting on social media your patient's privacy should really be at front of mind and making sure that you protect that and there are i mean this is where boundary issues come into play as well it's really important to consider who you are connecting and sharing information with on social media always be sure of the identity of the people whose requests you accept and we generally say avoid accepting requests from your patients yes yes i think you know being professional and uh, appreciating the very privileged position we're in as doctors and uh, how we really sacrosanct managing that privacy of the patient yeah something we have to have in the front of our mind at all times um the last one there medicare uh rocky tell us a bit about that this is issues more with uh what over servicing or under servicing or just claiming the wrong yeah. thing, something we haven't perhaps even done i mean that's yeah. that's a pretty obvious kind of i guess you know issue it's going to end us up in pretty bad places that's an obvious issue and, and most doctors don't uh claim things that they haven't done they might just not be using uh, the right item number so i'd probably have three yeah. top pieces of, of advice to avoid yes. a medicare audit the first one would be to get to know and understand every item number 
number that you use, including the descriptors and the explanatory notes. And if you do have any questions about a specific item number, I know that they can be really confusing. The Department of Health does have an email that you can write to with your questions and you get a written response back. And that's askmbs at health.gov.au. My second piece of advice would be uh, to remember that your provider number is your responsibility. And that's particularly important in a practice setting where you don't uh, perhaps maintain control all the time over your billings. I would say maintain tight control over them and what is being billed against your number because you're legally responsible for all those items billed to Medicare. And there's really limited scope uh, to share any responsibility with the practice. And my last piece of advice to avoid a Medicare audit um, would be to keep up to date with your your clinical knowledge and your professional peer so that you understand what's considered acceptable practice and whether your practice deviates from that. Because one of the main indicators that a doctor will have a Medicare audit um, is that they're not billing in a way that is considered acceptable practice from their peers. And they're generally doctors who are isolated, who are solo practitioners and who don't have that strong connection. So in this digital age, try to, if you are, if you don't physically have um, colleagues around you, try to connect in that way. Yes. I, I sort of think Medicare, uh, it would be great if Medicare at some point said, look, you know, hey, just by the way, you're outside the, the uh, you know, two standard deviations outside the norm. Um, mm. Dr. X, uh, just think about it because we're going to come and look at that and maybe you want to have a chat with your colleagues. Like we, we used to get a spreadsheet years and years ago, a spreadsheet which sort of indicated where you were and what, how many radiology services you were billing and pathology. I found that very useful, you know, because I was in the middle of it all and of the, of that bell shark curve, which I was very happy with. But it's, um, it's a shame we don't, I guess it's a lot of information for and a lot of work for Medicare, but that, because it's not always easy to know exactly what your colleagues are doing. And sometimes they're a little bit sheepish about telling you in a group we're in a group practice of nine of us you know so we can see if someone's sort of standing out of it you know one the secretary might say oh you know what do you think mm, you know do you think you should be charging that um you know it's not quite what everyone else is so i can understand the value of having a group of people but uh it would be great for us to have a bit more feedback from medicare maybe in that respect so uh, we avoid the that pitfall i agree well. and medicare is another topic like i think documentation that you're just not taught at university right. or there's no formal training on it mm-hmm. and it's something that you all have to use as well yeah, it's a mystery so, it's a mystery and well, like in public, in the public health system, you're not using it, but uh, there are some private and public clinics, but in general, you're not. So, yeah, like, it's a complete mystery. And I remember going into private practice you know, years ago, and I, look, I was asking, in fact, my anaesthetic colleagues, you know, for advice and, you know, what are people doing and how do you access these numbers and, you know, da da da. Yeah, it was a, it's like a sharp, steep learning curve for us. Um, as is this information, I think I just, I do wish this was part of the, the you know, the course. Rocky, we need to get you into the, you know, all the medical schools. Uh, really, really helpful. Side hustle. <laughs> you know, my son, my son is doing the CFA certified financial analyst exam. He, he's got he's done a couple of the uh, part one, part two, so on part three now. And there's a guy called Mark Meldrum who's uh, I think either Canadian or North American. And you buy his lecture package, and you know he's re- he's excellent. This guy, and he gives these lectures. You just access them on on the internet uh, once you've subscribed. But it'll be it'd be great. I reckon we're near the Rocky Roberto. Uh, you know, keep out of trouble. <laughs> lecture series. I, be- I tell you, there's a place. I think there's a real place for. 
through it, you know. Like, how do we avoid these issues? And uh, some of the, uh, like, some I've really enjoyed, um, you know, some of those key things that uh, Avant puts forward about, you know, no regular evidence sort of thing. That, that it's very helpful to have those little um, heuristics and catchphrases and things just to have in your mind to keep yourself out of trouble. Um, do, do you have any specific advice, Rocky? I don't take up a lot of your time. Specific advice for a young doctor then? Like, if you said, oh, here's the one thing you really want to take away, uh, you want to keep your nose clean, uh, don't have to be calling me every week. This is what you need to think about. <laughs> oh, for a young doctor, I think it is about um, those top three that we spoke about. I mean, communication is something that I think is, um, you can really learn it on the job. And if you do have a mentor that you admire and you think, gosh, that doctor really explained or showed a great amount of empathy to that patient, try yeah. to mirror what they've done or take some of their phrases until it becomes natural and you develop your own style. I think communication is so important important that consent discussion and considering a, a shared decision making process getting to know your patient finding out what's important to them and then how the treatment if it goes according to plan or if it doesn't go according to plan will affect them and being really open honest about that and finally documentation mm-hmm. documentation is even though that has written it I think it does have this particular evidentiary standard that is uh, quite high because it is the... Uh, it's a note that's made at the same time as the conversation. And generally, it's the only piece of evidence that happened at that particular time. So regardless of the fact that the doctor may have one version of the events and the patient may have another, that piece of documentation is given high evidentiary status. So it's really important to have detailed notes, particularly about the discussion of risks, um, because if things do go wrong, you know, patients are given autonomy and they are able to make those decisions if they are given all that information. So if that discussion is well documented, then you should be held in good stead to defend successfully that claim or complaint. Rocky, thank you very much. You are the sage of Avant and uh, I've really, really enjoyed the communication and conversation with you. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, I was going to say grazie mille and arrivederci. <laughs> I, hope I, hope I can see you socially, not so much like, you know, in the courtroom where you're defending me. <laughs> Thank you very much again. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in that conversation with Rocky Ruperto from the Avant organisation, which I really enjoyed. Please refer to the show notes as well, which are quite detailed on this episode. I have to say that if my back was against the wall, I would definitely like Rocky in my corner. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed, and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au. Thank you.